Wicked Cool. Feature alert. Hey there, podcast fans. Thanks for listening. Now, you can also reach out and send me a text message. On every episode at the top of the show notes, you'll see a link that says, send us a text message. Simply click it, write something super nice and sweet, and away we go. Also remember to please subscribe, share this podcast with a friend by telling them about it, and leave us a positive review, whether it's on Apple, Spotify, your favorite podcast streaming service, or even on our website at www.afraidofnothingpodcast.com. Okay, so I'm here with a couple special guests, two little girls, two big girls that I've been quarantined from. Hello, Emily. Hello, Carly. Hello, this is Carly Heskey. And I'm Emily Heskey, the star of the Afraid of Nothing movie. You can see my brilliant sister in the documentary on Amazon Prime and Videospace. You can also buy great stuff from the Afraid of Nothing podcast store. I got a shirt. And I got a notebook to write my next screenplay. Check the show notes. Oh, and my dad is crazy. Love you, Dad. Love you, Dad. Mwah! In a world where nothing is known, nothing is certain, reality is not real. Wake up! Be afraid of nothing. I'm Bob Heskey. Robert. The host with the ghost. This is my podcast, based on my paranormal documentary, Afraid of Nothing. Each episode, we talk to people who see life and the afterlife through a different lens. Join me. Who is this large man? And what's he doing in our bedroom? As we lift the veil and open our minds to see beyond our eyes lie. This is Afraid of Nothing. Nothing. Okay, we're here with Jeff Belanger, who is an author, podcaster, paranormal investigator, scaler of Mount Kilimanjaro. Jeff, what do you go by today? What 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 are you actually? I think just Jeff is fine. Really? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, like I, I don't know. I, I guess I'm a person. I, I seek adventures. I, I love to explore things. I love telling stories. And I'm so fortunate that I get to do all these things, whether it's through a book or a podcast or a webcast or whatever. I, I'm just living life and pursuing my bliss, Robert. You are doing one thing which is amazing right now. I think you've figured out this quarantine thing. You have found a way to publicly drink during the day and hang out with your friends online. <laughs> so you want, you want to tell our guests kind of about your speakeasy and, and kind of how that's going? Yeah, it started a month ago when the quarantine hit. Like a lot of people, I was in a spin and I was having horrible days and, a, oh, my goodness, what are we going to do? And it's it was a really frightening time. And one of the things I missed was my friends and I missed going out and I missed going to a bar and hanging out with people and talking. And I said, all right, well, this is just a problem we got to solve. So uh, I reached out to some buddies and I said, hey, you want to get online, like like do a, conf- a video conference, but let others watch and we'll drink. And uh, they were like, you, you had me a drink. (laughs) (laughs) So so we started doing that. And and it was, I mean, like we had like 4,000 people watch us drink. And I went, wait a minute, (laughs) this could be something. But the best comments I got were, oh my God, I felt like I did something social for the first time in weeks. And uh, that kept me going. And so since then, I've been doing about three a week. Um, every other day or so, I'll just connect with somebody and we get online and, and we it's on Facebook Live, it's on YouTube Live, and then it's available afterward. I just call it the speakeasy. I mean, I'm, I spoke to a guy last night. I went to college with him. He just put a book out about the Subway series of the year 2000 between the Yankees and the Mets. You could fill a thimble with everything I know about the Subway series about the Yankees and the Mets. (laughs) But I was like, what the heck? I haven't talked to him in forever. He wrote a book. That's a hard thing to do. Let's just talk about sports. But the bigger discussion, of course, right, is like, 
Well, I may not like baseball, but I do like congregating with lots of people in big arenas for other things. And, you know, that affects all of us. Yeah. You know, and you also have to actually keep your edge a little bit. You don't drink as much as your guests because you got to control the questions and look at stuff. So you have to be somewhat cognizant. You do a great job. I've, I've sat in on a couple of them. You get a huge turnout. A lot of people follow you on Facebook, over 15,000, I think. And yeah. you get a very good turnout. So when's your next one? And how do they kind of, you know, we'll throw plugs as we go along. Yeah, sure. So uh, I don't know when you're going to put this out, but Friday night, which is the uh, <laughs> Blur's Day, right? That's what they're all called now. <laughs> Blur's Day. <laughs> April 24th. Yep. The 24th. So Friday night, um, I'm I'm making Friday night a, a party night going forward. Friday night's at seven. I'm just going to always do a show. This Friday night, I've got my buddy Dave Schrader joining me again uh, from Darkness Radio and the Holzer Files on uh, Travel Channel. Aaron Ryder, who was on Destination Truth uh, on the Sci-Fi Channel, and she's a TV producer. She's going to be joining us from L.A. And then we've got a musical guest, Slamabama, who uh, <laughs> they're amazing. Wow. I, I met them at a paranormal conference uh, years ago, and I've seen them multiple times. I've sang with the band. I sat in with them for like a, a song or two. And so I have Slamabama coming from Alabama. I got Aaron Ryder in L.A., Dave Schrader's in Minneapolis, and I'm in the Boston area. And we're going to just like drink and play music and talk Friday night. And people are welcome to join. And that's all it's supposed to be. It's We're not going to break new ground on like hard hitting interviews. We're going to have drinks and we're going to laugh and we're going to talk about life and just try to make it as normal as we can. Yeah, it's it's a great idea. I mean, I what I saw is very charming, and you guys are very you're friends with everybody. It really is like being in a bar and kind of listening in on a conversation and being able to interject some things every now and then. You know, it's just a lot of fun, and I really encourage people. I'll try to get this up by then. I'm pretty good at getting podcasts up, so we'll see. If cool. not, then it's every it's yeah. every Friday, right? It's pretty much every Friday. Uh, well, then. well the, every Friday is going to be the party. Every Friday at seven. That's um, going forward. It, it takes a while, you know. I, Bob, as you know, like we're trying to figure out a new normal every single day that we go through this. Um, and that means making time to work on projects because I think it's important, even though I'm not, you know, working on ghost adventures right now or whatever, I still work on something every day. It, it helps me with my own sanity and with a routine. And you know, I redid my website. I've been doing these speakeasies. I'm, I'm working on a new book. Like it's just I have to keep busy or I'll just lose my mind. Where do they find the speakeasy? Is it on Facebook that you announce it? Is it on your website, which is jeffbelanger.com? Or- yeah, it's uh, you can find uh, links on my website, but also it's my my Facebook page. It's Exploring Legends uh, on Facebook. And uh, it's also, I post about it on my Twitter, on my Instagram, and it's on my YouTube. So yeah, wherever you find me on social media, I always tell people what I'm doing with the speakeasies and everybody's welcome to join in and join in the hoot nanny. Yeah, it's good stuff. And music this Friday. That's great. You know, I was looking at you. You just read your website. It looks great, by the way. It's really, really awesome. Thank you. What, what is that picture from? What forest is that picture from on your homepage? So uh, that the backdrop of my homepage, that picture was taken by the great Frank Grace. And that is in the uh, Bridgewater Triangle. He took that's this. I uh, yep. Yeah, I, th- I think that's Freetown State Forest. I would have to ask him. But Frank has been a, a dear friend for years, and he, he lets me use some of his photography. And I don't know if you noticed a page on there for the Afraid of Nothing documentary. Oh, I did not. I, wow, I you didn't look. look. Did, yeah, you do, because I put that up a few days ago. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you so much. And let's do a little transition. Before we go into Afraid of Nothing, I, I looking at your website, you do so many things. You've written over a dozen books, I believe, uh, even a kid's book, uh, which is really tough about the White House, which is very tough to get in there. But you got in there and you got some great ghost stories about the the White House. You have a podcast. You, oh my God, you have a video series. Can you just touch on some of the things you do and what are you focusing on now, now that you're you're being quarantined? What, what's most of your attention going to? The last time I did my website was 2012. That took two weeks to rebuild. I mean, it's one of those things where I knew for years. I'm like, I, when am I ever going to have the time to do it? <laughs> well, guess what? <laughs> <laughs> you ask and God delivers, right? Yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> I was gifted with the time. So, I mean, that literally took like two weeks because it was from the ground up a rebuild. And so that I was psyched to get that done. Uh, the speakeasies have been super fun. and And really, that's just about... But but that's mainly for my sanity and other. it's helping other people too, so that's awesome. But I do suspect I'm going to keep doing these even after quarantine ends, probably to a much less frequent extent. But I think we're, we're discovering a whole new way to connect and entertain and stay engaged. 
And that's amazing, right? I mean, TV networks are starting to put on streaming stuff because they have nothing else. And, and so I th- so that's that's kind of been a focus. I'm actually going to start doing library lectures again uh, very soon. Saturday night will be my first one at the Sharon Public Library. It's all virtual. So now it's my favorite thing to do is to is to tell these stories in front of a live audience. There's nothing in the world like it. And so my challenge is I can do a whole multimedia thing. I can show you pictures and video and sound and you'll see me on video. But how do I take that that performance stage show thing that I do in person and how do I make it translate on camera? I'm working on that because I'll be doing these programs for various libraries because they're all shut up and they're looking for virtual content. So I got to meet people where they are. Yeah. So that's what I'm doing. You're definitely ahead of the game. I mean, I'm working from home. It's a new dynamic. I mean, you get up later, you take a shower and you, you, you know, you're on Zoom or whatever. And but I think the fallout of this yeah. is is force people to work from home. And I, I, I can imagine the cost to corporate America. I mean, look, it's going to affect real estate, but the cost for travel and T&E and all that stuff is probably going to go down if this becomes more of the new norm of having people outsourced and working you know, virtually. Totally. And I wonder how many companies have discovered like, wow. We don't really have to send two people to Chicago and pay for airfare and hotels and meals and rental cars to have a one hour meeting when a Zoom meeting would do. You know what I mean? Like it's it's uh, hopefully everybody learns to trim a little bit of fat because the reality is the economic recovery from this thing for all of us, whether individually or as companies or whatever, is going to take a long time. But I also I'm I am the biggest optimist you will ever find. I think we're going to learn new things. We're going to learn stuff about ourselves, about the way we work, about what we want to do. And hopefully we can we can grow as people out of this and come out of it with like new skills, new whatever. Right. Whatever whatever it is you learn about yourself or about the world around you. I think we can come out of this better. You know, what's weird. It's that. Working from home in a pandemic when we should be all be afraid of each other, it's probably going to connect people a lot more because they're going to be online, connected virtually, and I bet you their communication skills will even get better because they're, you know, they're communicating over a virtual airwave. You know, right? So when, when texting got to be a big deal, how many times have you had a text that was just so misconstrued, right? Because oh, yeah, you just, yeah. you don't like tone of voice is so important when someone's saying something like, Oh yeah, that's pretty funny. You know, like and you're like, did you just insult me, or were you just like being dry? Or f- I mean, when you have face facial expressions, and when you're face to face with someone, you can get the subtleties of someone's comments. That like, oh, you didn't really mean that, or it was a joke, or no, that was a directed at me. And it's so lost. And so we either we either have to figure out how to be better communicators, or we have to get on these video conferences. I don't. Know, I think it's exciting. I think it's it's an exciting time that we all have to be forced into growth. And I'm, I'm a big fan of that. I'm a big fan of growing, which is why early on you had a hard time defining me. Like, am I a mountain climber, an author, a story, you know, like, yeah, yeah, all the above. I, I, yeah, all the above. And, and I hope that's what we should all be right. All the above. We shouldn't just be one thing too much out there in the world for that. Yeah, no, that's great optimism. I mean, I've talked to, I'm on my 15th, 16th episode. And there is a fair amount of optimism on some of the people, at least in the paranormal community, surprisingly, which is good. It's refreshing, you know, because it's very easy to get up in the morning and be depressed and like, oh, here we go again. So you kind of have to pick yourself up by the bootstraps and proceed with the good attitude. So I think it's something we all have to do. Don't get me wrong. There's days I don't want to get up either. You know, I mean, I, I have bad days. I'm not like Mr. Perfect about the whole thing. Shoot, last night, for whatever reason, I didn't want to go to bed. I, I, I can't, you know, it's, it was getting later and later and you know, you should go. Cause like, you know, you got to get up again, yeah. <laughs> and, but it just, it just felt so daunting. There was nothing I wanted to watch on TV. I didn't want to play any games. I didn't want to be on my phone and it was just getting later and later. And I'm like, man, this is how it starts, isn't it? You know? And, uh, you got to just try again tomorrow. That's all you can do. Yeah. You know, what gets me through it. I've, I've started watching Ozark. Uh, I don't know if you follow that on, <laughs> on Netflix and yeah, I, I'll yeah. watch an episode and I'll go, you know, Jesus, look what Marty Bird's got to go through. I'm, I'm fine. I'll get up and deal with this because, yeah, it's crazy. So, yeah, no, no, that's that's good for you because, I mean, I, I've actually recently bought four tigers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to start breeding them. I, 
I don't know what gave me the idea, but I'm going to start breeding these things. I think it's going to be big. I think I'm going to make a lot of money. Yeah. It's going to be awesome. Do one of your speakeasies with you guys getting drunk in a cage with tigers. That'd be really good. Yeah. yeah. Oh, dude, that's that's a great idea. <laughs> See? See? I'm going to be rich. There you go. For a short while. Yeah. So while you're still alive, before you get in with the cats, let's talk about, uh, you know, <laughs> you were one of the, the main cogs of my documentary, Afraid of Nothing. And I started this podcast a couple months ago. I made the film and couldn't afford to make more film, so I, I like the paranormal, so I continued doing this. And it was you know, really great to meet you, and it was only for an hour or so in your house, but uh, you were peppered all over that documentary, and you're you even my big finish at the end. I won't just talk about that, but uh, you know, really appreciated you being on the uh, on, in that documentary. You, you brought really a storyteller aspect, which was really great. It, it brought some glue to the documentary for me. Well, thank you. Yeah, no, and thanks for asking me. I, it, was, um, it was a cool project. It's always funny when someone calls something an experimental documentary. <laughs> Those yeah. are your words, not mine. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. And it's so you're like, oh, is that like, uh, you know, like college art or something? You know. And, yeah. and uh, but <laughs> no, it was really cool, and I appreciate. Like the reality is, when you get into this, and you did, you got into this. One of the takeaways I got from the film is that you understood that there are like 22 different ways of looking at this subject. And they're vastly different. And some people will look at it like I've been in groups of, of paranormal people where you're like, are you crazy putting a crystal on your forehead and you think you're going to channel who to what now? Yeah. And then so, and then someone else is talking to a phone app, right? Saying, please tell me, grandma, are you here? And, and the crystal guy's like, are you out of your mind? Your phone doesn't your phone is for texting and email and like surfing the Web. And then there's, you know, the, the person that's like the skeptic says, I don't believe in anything. And then they're just like, I just want to find Bigfoot. And like, it's it's so across the board. And I think you gave us kind of like a buffet of all of that. And at the end of the day, the reality is you kind of find your own truth as you get into this. You find what resonates with you and you have to, number one, leave the rest behind. But number two, you also have to live and let live. So just because... I don't sit in the dark talking to a phone app doesn't mean that someone else can't find some sort of fulfillment in that. Your slogan on your new website, Exploring the Unexplained, I mean, your classic example of that, I mean, you had mentioned the documentary, you were involved in this and had an interest for a long time, but it wasn't until a little bit later that you had your first ghost experience. So do you, do you mind kind of, I know it's in the documentary, but you mind kind of give us the reader's digest of your first ghost experiences sure. and any, any ones you've had since then? Yeah, no problem. So I, I started, I was interested as a kid because I grew up in the town next to Ed and Lorraine Warren. I knew them since I was very young. Uh, I had a friend that said his house was haunted, so we would have sleepovers. And I mean, the house was built in like 1760. It was older than the country. And so I kind of grew up around this stuff, but I didn't have a ghost experience. Even when I started writing about it in the mid nineties, working um, for newspapers and magazines and stuff like that, uh, I didn't have my first experience until 2003. And that's when I was in the city of Paris, France, and I was alone on this trip. And I, I went down into the catacombs, which are these network of tunnels beneath the city. And it's an amazing bit of history because Paris goes back almost 2,000 years to when it was a Roman outpost. And underneath the city in the mid-1700s to 1800s, they had emptied many of the cemeteries and put the skeletons down below did this in this very macabre pattern i mean there's just piles and piles of bones and and very intricate like retaining walls of arms and legs and skulls that form valentine hearts and crosses and so on and as i was walking through this long hallway i saw a shadow the size of a man come from the right side and go to the left and then he went back and i just paused and froze and i went well, okay wait a minute uh you know, is someone down here with me? And then realizing, no, that's impossible. This this hallway's too narrow for someone to have come up from behind me. And there's no side tunnel up there. Like it's just this long straightaway. And in that moment, I was changed because I said, look, if that's not a ghost, I don't have another word for what that thing is. I, I my lexicon lacks another descriptor for for this thing. And it took days, weeks, months to sink in. Like, wow, this must be what everybody's talking about. I was somewhere and I saw something that I didn't ask for. I didn't summon. It was just there when I was there and I can't explain it. And it's, uh, it's driven me since to, to keep exploring it, to keep going into these situations where most of the time I don't see anything. I mean, if I were a fisherman, 
You know, like, oh, I've been fishing like 800 times and I've caught four fish. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's that's most fishermen would give up, <laughs> but they were four really good oh, fish. Yeah, yeah. And, and I have to did you because you're a researcher. Did you do any research after that experience? If you know, to explain kind of if that shadow figure or anything or. I did research before and after. I mean, I knew where I was going and I knew why I was going there. I mean, I knew that there were millions of human skeletons down below the city uh, and I knew where they were and why they were there. And I also, my last name, Belanger, by the way, if if you go back several generations, uh, when we came over, it was Belanger, right? I mean, uh, in fact, when I go to France or I go to Canada, I pronounce my name Belanger. Right. It's a totally common name. But it's been Belanger here for like six generations. So <laughs> what are you going to do? I wonder if any Belangers are in are in the catacombs. I almost guarantee it. Um, my name, my last name is on the Eiffel Tower. Uh, and oh, my God. Wow. <laughs> right. It's, it's I mean, it's a super common name. I can't. It's almost as common a name as like Baker in the U.S. Yeah. Like, like the, wow. you know, you know how you, there's like a million bakers, like, sure. It's almost that common. And so, and, and by the way, there's a bunch of names around the Eiffel tower of like prominent French names, notable people. And I'm 99.9% .9 sure the the Belanger is not after me <laughs> yeah, <laughs> on the well. Eiffel tower, <laughs> but some distant relative somewhere. Wow. Would it be something if that shadow person was a relative? I mean, did you ever think about that? I did. Believe me, I, I thought like maybe there's something in my very DNA. And by the way, I'm a mutt. I'm no I'm no purebred at all. Right. Like there's Lithuanians in there and Polish in there and like the all of Europe had a party. And then there's even like some Native American in there somewhere <laughs> like yeah. I, I, I'm a mutt. Right. There's there's nothing, uh, nothing pure in me. But um, but yeah, somewhere in that DNA is some some French chromosome somewhere and and i don't know was that a connection it may be but all i have to go by was the shadow and i i don't think i'll ever know who or what that was but no it, it's occurred to me that maybe that's family like god knows where and how god that would be amazing wow yeah you had a couple other experiences you mentioned have you had anything since our documentary i know you're a very busy guy and you're all over the place have you had any, <laughs> any other things happen to you or well no uh, and when, when did we film that? Please. Was we, it, oh, it was, last uh, summer, the summer? Oh, before? no, no. A couple, about three years ago, three years ago. So there was another place you were in with four people and you saw a person and they. Yeah. Yeah. No. So no, that, that was my most recent. I, so I had, I've been to Mount Kilimanjaro just before, I think you, you interviewed me, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yep. And, and so, um, at the top of the mountain, I had a deeply spiritual experience. I wouldn't label it ghostly. I would label it a lot more spiritual. Part of the reason I did Kilimanjaro is I had lost my brother-in-law to cancer and I had a picture of him with me and I, I, um, I had raised money for cancer research and, and part of doing that. And when I got to the top, I had done tons and tons of, of research on, on Kilimanjaro and the uh, Maasai people believe it's the house of God and only God dwells up there. And the only people allowed up there are those that are deemed worthy. And like, I got to tell you, when it's 6.30 in the morning and you've been climbing all night in the dark and it's as cold as you've ever been and you see this sunrise from like almost 19,000 feet, I I've never felt so connected to like my maker. I felt the presence of my brother-in-law. I felt like everything in that one moment and I'll never, ever forget it. It was the most powerful spiritual experience of my entire life. And, and that's, that's the most recent, but it was big. You know what I mean? Oh, like yeah. I said, I've only caught a few, a few fish in all these years, but at the same time, there's when they happen to me, because I'm, I don't consider myself overly sensitive. I don't see ghosts everywhere I go. So when it happens, I'm like, wow, there must be something really there because here I am. And there it is. And you, you wrote a book based on that experience, correct? I, I did. So the, the book I wrote on Kilimanjaro, it's called the call of Kilimanjaro. In fact, we're just moving, it's moving into layout right now. Um, it's going to be out in March of 2021. It's at the publisher. It's getting ready to go to the printer. Oh, cool. Well, congratulations. That's a great accomplishment. Um, yeah. Amazing. Very, you know, you do a lot of so, stuff. So, you know, the just quick, quick story on that. So I've never written a memoir before, and I wrote nine drafts of the book, which um, I'm not bragging. That's terrible. Like it's, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, I've never had to write nine drafts of, of anything. And, and the reason is, it's really hard to be objective when it comes to your own experience. 
that was a big takeaway from that is that, you know, when, when you, like, if someone tells me a story, if you tell me your ghost story, Bob, I can, I can edit it. I can be like, Oh, Bob, no one cares that you were going for like diet Mountain Dew. Right. Right. (laughs) Before it happened. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No one cares. That's not an important part of the story. Like, but so I'm pretty good at like looking at someone else's story and going, yep, that's important. This part is not, I get it. But, uh, when it's yourself, you know, like, so the first draft was like 90,000 words and it's like went to REI and I got fitted for like my sleeping bag. And it, you know, you, you have to read it later to be like, oh, no one cares about that. Yeah. <laughs> no one cares. Cut, cut, gone. I mean, it must be the same with editing, right? When you're editing a film, th- the magic of documentary film is editing. Oh yeah. Right. Like what do you leave, what do you leave in? What do you take out? Like that's, that's the challenge. Yeah. You were uh, very insightful. You were at the Mass Paracon, and you gave a great uh, presentation in the fall. And you had mentioned, I gave you a copy of it, and you had talked to me a couple of days later, and we were very gracious in, in the nice comments you said. And you had noted that it was very difficult to make a documentary without narration. I was like, oh, God, somebody gets it, because it was so Oh, hard. yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, all right, so we're going to give away some secrets? Let's give away secrets. I don't mind. Sure. Um, so it, when, when you make documentary anything visual, like film, TV, whatever, and I've been working in TV since 2004. I, for those of you who have ever done home improvements, you're probably aware of what spackle is, right? So like when you, when you mess up the wall, when you've got n- nail holes in the wall, you take spackle and you just whoosh, right over, yeah, yeah. let it dry, and you paint. And no one knows there was ever a problem. Right. Right. Yeah. Yep. That's what that's what voiceover is. Oh, yeah. yeah <laughs> voiceover yeah. is spackle. So you're, you're trying to cobble together this story and you're like, oh, God, how do I get from like, you know, sitting outside an old graveyard to inside of a building, you know, um, talking to a psychic medium? Oh, I know. Voiceover. You just have some transition shot yeah. like a car driving by and you go. Maybe the voices of the dead can also be heard indoors when a psychic medium channels them, right? Like that's, that's spackle and that's, that's the easy way, but you did it the hard way. The hard way is to make sure it just transitions from one to the next. And and the viewer isn't looking for some sort of direction because it's just sort of inherent in the narrative and it's so hard to do. So yeah, well done. Thank you. Yeah. It wasn't like braver. It's more stupidity. I just kind of like stumbled and said, unfortunately, <laughs> I had a title, like afraid of nothing. So I could create chapter breaks and things like that. And, yeah. And getting back to your book, one last thing with such a spiritual experience, that must've been the toughest chapter for you to write and be happy with. Were you, were you happy with the final version when you explained that experience on top of the mountain? Oh my God. So, um, th- I've, I've never been so proud of anything I've written that's, uh, oh, that's in this great. book. It's, it, I mean, it's because honestly, like I've also never taken so little money for anything I've worked so hard on. <laughs> so right. it's yeah. like, it's, uh, I mean, like if you put in the hours, like, oh my, I am so, so very far below minimum wage, non-existence, pennies, pennies per hour. But at the same time, I don't care because I believe in it so much. And I think it's important for others to experience it with me. Actually, the the writing of the, the climax was not that hard. Really? That part was the easiest part. The rest was like making you care about the whole journey was more of a challenge because the climax is, I mean, that, I think anybody can get kind of stoked about like waking up at midnight to climb to the top of the tallest mountain in Africa. Like, and, and, and then to have the payoff, like that's, that's the inherent climax, but to make you care about the whole journey was a bigger challenge as a writer. And and one that, one that I don't know if I pulled off yet. You're going to have to let me know next year. (laughs) Now, how did you get down? Was it a helicopter or after that big climax, did you have to climb all the way? I just started rolling. No, no. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, it's uh, it's two days back down. So the way Kilimanjaro works, it's uh, it's one there's various routes to get to the top and we took the longest, but there's one way down and that's the most direct way. And the reason is they don't want to make any sort of clog during the busy season. So everybody comes down the same route. It's two days down to the bottom and uh, and then, then you're off. Yeah. Yeah, you must be just dying to get home at that point. Those must be that probably has to be as long as going up those two days on the way back. Well, so the the thing is, once you get there, there's um there's like this elation of like, wow, I've been training for this. I mean, training hard for months and months and eating the right foods and exercising and all this other stuff. And so singularly focused on this thing. But then you also have to remember that the summit, when you're climbing any mountain, uh, and this is true literally and it's true metaphorically. Uh, the summit is the halfway point. 
And you can never forget that yeah. because you have to get down. <laughs> and I, I took that one step forward, right? Like, like, uh, so, you know, I mean, people die on mountains all the time. They die on Everest, right? Yep. And if, if you're a hundred feet from the top and you, you got just like just minutes left to give, do you push for the top and die there? Or do you come back down and try again another day? Yeah. Because if you push to the top and die there, it was a waste. It, yep. You know, who are you going to tell about it? Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you have to always remember, like, the summit is halfway. And that was that was one of my big takeaway lessons is like, hey, the summit is halfway home. Like, that, the goal is to get home. Like, back in Massachusetts, not to the top of Kilimanjaro. The goal is to bring it all home. That's when the mission was accomplished. The coming home was such a holy cow! What a what a crash of, oh, of hangover! Like just you know, like now what? Now what? I mean, Robert, I was like, it was it was weeks of almost depression. You know, yeah, like wow. n- now. I mean, I've been so psyched about this, and now what do I do? And now what do I do? Is I don't know. You find the next thing. You find the next mountain. Yeah, to to a much smaller degree for myself, when I made my first movie, my ex-wife was like, you're going to be happy now, right? And no, I wasn't. Like, <laughs> no. It didn't change anything. So you're totally right. <laughs> was, okay. was Tom Brady happy when he won his first Super no, Bowl? No, no. For a minute. You yeah, know? That's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. Then you're thinking about the next one. And I think, but but that's that's what driven people um, have to do. And, and also, like, that's what everybody has to do. No matter what you're doing in your life, if you find that thing that gets your juices flowing and and you you get there and you accomplish it you owe it to yourself to set the next goal and and just keep moving the bar because you can do anything you you made a movie then you made another one and and how awesome is that and now you're doing a podcast and it's just it's about like i think for for some of us it's just a compulsion and you you follow that Hello, listeners. I want to play a game. but first a disturbing interruption Whoa, you must be the new roommate. Uh, what's your name? Annabelle. Hi, Annabelle. Uh, what are you doing on my Allswell mattress? I need to possess it. Yeah, hey, look, I get it. Allswell mattresses are the best. Its hybrid mattress technology gives you the comfort of memory foam with the support of individually wrapped coils. All at a really great price. Allswell. Yeah, you got it. You can even try it for 100 nights, risk-free. And if you're not satisfied with the sleep that you're getting, simply ship it back. Plus, every Allswell mattress comes with a 10-year limited warranty. So if you ever have any problems, you don't have to worry about being stuck in bed hell. There's only one problem. You need to get your own. Oh, and you get free shipping on your first Allswell mattress simply by following the link in the show notes. It helps support the podcast. Never be afraid of a good night's sleep. All's well. And now, back to our horrific program. <laughs> Let's go to the beginning for you a little bit, if you don't mind. I'll, I'll put the way back sure. machine. Ghost Adventures. Is it correct? Every single show you've been the researcher on that and have appeared on you yeah, as well? Yeah, everyone. Yeah, every, since 2004. It seems with all that you do that that would take a tremendous amount of time. Can you kind of walk us through a little bit what it's like, what you do as a researcher for a show sure. like that? And and some of your most notable events, too, if you don't mind, your favorite places that you've been. Uh, yeah, God. So uh, it started, I got a phone call from Zach before the show went on Travel Channel. Our mutual friend, Dave Schrader, had... Zach said to Dave, hey, I need someone that knows haunted places everywhere. And Dave said, oh, you got to talk to Jeff Belanger. He's written all these books. I was like, oh, yeah, eight episodes. Okay, I could do that. That sounds interesting. What I would do is I help, I would help them find the locations. I would give them all the historical background on the location, find the people that have had experiences that would come on and share their stories, and then sort of help piece together the first, we call them acts. That's the the parts between the commercials. Yep. Uh, it's an hour show. And so the first two acts are the setup. And those are produced with no apology. I mean, that's it's yes, it's a reality show. But the first part where we set everything up, that's put together by editors and writers and so on. Because we have to set up why we're there and why it's haunted and, and who's had experiences and why the guys are going in. Now, once the guys go into the lockdown, 
then it's it's a reality show. They're filming it from all these angles. They explore and then they edit that down. And that's that's when it's completely unscripted. So that's kind of like how it works. So now, I mean, the show's gotten I mean, it's it's amazing for any show to go this long it's it's iconic it literally is iconic yeah <laughs> you know, it's kind of it like is now i know yeah art bell ghost adventures kind of like when you think of paranormal no and it's awesome to be part of something that big it's been 12 years and still going and we we were in the middle of i mean i was turning in an episode when we heard hey the crew can't fly right now so we're gonna just pause I mean, you know, and we will get back to it. I'm sure as soon as it's safe to fly again and travel, we're going to pick it back up. I love it when when I know where we're going and I'm told like, here, Jeff, go. It's it's yours. And I get to find stuff and, and find nuggets that sometimes other people haven't found. I just dig in as much as I can on a location and, and look at look at it from every angle. What are some of your most uh, favorite shows and, and uh, places you've been? A favorite location I always come back to Penhurst Asylum. That one, when we were working on it, I think it was season two or three. It was one of the earlier ones. It, we were the first show to get in there. And now it's been on all the ghost shows. But back then, it, it was really interesting because they said, all right, this is a, uh, you know, it's an abandoned asylum. And I was like, okay, I know what to do. Like, we've done abandoned asylums. I got it. And so I started researching. And then I learned there's a federal law called the Penhurst Law. And it has to do with how you can and can't treat people with mental disabilities because of atrocities that took place inside that building. And then I started digging deeper and it was such a heart wrenching story because number one, the atrocities we're talking about took place in the 1970s, 1970s. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, I, I was alive, (laughs) you know, like for example, loved ones would get dropped off at this, this facility and they tell the people like, listen, don't call, don't write, don't visit. It's going to mess up their routine. We're the professionals. We know what to do. So just you, you know, you stay away. We got this. And so people trusted them and then they would go inside. And over time, that facility was so underfunded, understaffed. The conditions were so brutal. I spoke to a patient who said, if you bit someone more than once, they removed all your teeth surgically. Um, they literally put some people into dog kennels, like cages, because they were they were so wild. They were going to hurt themselves or others. It was so short staffed that two nurses would be assigned to like a hundred beds where patients are are so profoundly disabled they can't even get out of bed, and they would just change diapers from one to the next all the way down the row, a hundred beds. And when they were done, it was time to go back and start again. Like that's just all you did all day long. And some of these patients would rub their feces in their hair and face, not because they were monsters or or whatever, but because they knew if they did that, they would get human contact and touch. They would get a bath. Imagine that conditions are so bad that you resort to that just to get human contact. Suddenly, during the middle of this quarantine, (laughs) some people are going... I get it, right? Like some <laughs> yeah, people who are out there living thing. alone and they're like, like yeah, another yeah. three more weeks, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. You, you you might find yourself really craving contact. I mean, hugging a friend, shaking someone's hand, like whatever. I mean, whatever sort of intimacy you need in your life is suddenly feeling like the most important thing in the world right now. Imagine that times a thousand. And that's what some of these patients went through. And so suddenly telling that story felt really important. It was like, this is a place that's haunted because it should be haunted, because it should haunt us and we should never forget what happened. And I'm so glad that we were in there to tell that story. And if a ghost story can make us a little bit uncomfortable, I always thought maybe there's a chance that it won't happen again, that there won't be another Penhurst. And that's the power of of a, a legend, a story, and and the power of media when you can tell a story like that to the masses. When I first met you, you said a great thing I remembered um, was that ghosts are history. And, and I think that's just so true. I mean, people think of them differently, but really yeah. they are history. They have a story to them. And if you, you look at it the right way, there could be a lesson learned too to help us move forward. I think that's true of any legend. I think that, you know, it's it's some sort of, uh, it's like a, a sermon from the past, right? And it's a, a lesson we have yet to learn. It hasn't soaked in. And that's why we keep it around. And it's not up to me and it's not up to you. It's a collective thing that we keep talking about the Lizzie Borden house being haunted because there's an unsolved murder that happened, double murder that happened there, uh, that we talk about these various places, Gettysburg or whatever. And there's a reason they just keep coming up. 
it's because we haven't quite reconciled with our own past yet. And that legend is going to stay alive. Those ghosts are going to keep haunting us until we let them go. And we may let go one day, 10, 20, 50 years. I don't know. And others, I don't know if we ever will. Yeah. The thing about Lindsay Borden, people don't realize it probably, but that was probably the second most famous murder at that time where communications weren't like rampant after Jack the Ripper, I think, right? It was very well It was known. huge. Yeah. Because it was so, I mean, wait a minute, like two people are in the house and someone snuck in, murdered two people, like bludgeoned them to death and didn't steal anything. And there's no forced entry and no sign of struggle. Well, wait a minute, you know, like it sounds, <laughs> how could that be? And, uh, it, it was just such a captivating case. It was in all the papers. It went viral for, you know, 1892. And when you go there now and you know, you've been there, it looks like it did in 1892. I mean, they, they went through great effort to make it look that way. And you almost like put your mind back there. It's almost like a time warp. And I think you connect, you connect because, Hey, I mean, it could have been you. It could have been you bludgeoned to death. It could have been you stuck in that house and you're just trying to figure it out. Like, why did this happen? Who did it? It's a, it's a powerful place. When you were at Penhurst, you know, for ghost adventures, was there, was there much activity on that episode? So I, I had gone there another time for a show called paranormal challenge Penhurst. And, um, I was one of the judges and I got there right the day we were filming, and Zach, Dave Schrader, and I went down into one of the tunnels that connect two of the buildings below ground. We weren't on the grounds five minutes, and we go down there, and suddenly we hear this like little giggle way down in the distance in the dark. And then this cold rush of air just, you know, whoosh, right by us. And we just look at each other like there's no cameras rolling, nothing. We just got there. And we were like, whoa. It was like, it's, it almost felt like the building was ready to talk. Uh, like, you know, we're, we're ready for our close up. Let's do this. That's all that happened uh, on that day. But again, like for me, that's a big deal. Like that doesn't happen. You know, <laughs> you know, I can usually explain things when something weird happens. And this one just right there, as soon as we got there, it was, it was amazing. I'm going to jump around a little bit because you did something I thought was pretty spectacular. It was you actually got access to write about the ghost at the White House in a kid's book. Can you just spend a couple of minutes about that project? And I know it's still available, yeah. but I think that's pretty interesting. And tell us about some of the ghosts that are at the White House and where you got the stories is interesting, too. Yeah. So that was a project. I um, oh, my gosh. George W. Bush was president back then. And I called the White House and I just called the main number <laughs> and I said, uh, hey, yeah, I'm a author trying to write a book about the ghosts of the White House. And they were just like, uh, hold on, please. <laughs> OK, <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. And. And it, it just like seconds later, I'm transferred to the boss and I'm like, whoa, you know, the boss is the chief usher. Uh, his name was Gary Walters. He's great. And he's the person that all the White House employees report to. And by employees, I mean like groundskeepers, butlers, cleaning crew, the people that take care of the building. Doesn't matter who's president or which political party's in power. Like they they just work for the building and they, you know, presidents come and go. These people stay there forever. I said, hey, I'm looking to do a book about the ghosts of the White House. And he said, yeah, we're not interested. And I said, but it's a children's book and we're going to use ghosts as kind of like an innovative way to teach history to kids because you can't know who a ghost is unless you know who the person was. And he went, oh, go on. Wow. <laughs> and so uh, I was invited down there. Yeah, no, it was, it was amazing. I was invited down. They did a background check on me, this whole thing. I got to interview Gary in his office and get a tour of the White House, talk to some of the staff. And it was so cool because they were so forthcoming about their ghost experiences because they're not political at all, right? Like these folks don't watch CNN or Fox News or anything. I'm sure of it, right? They just, but they're so patriotic. They know their history. They love their country, but I don't think they pay attention to politics because I don't imagine how you could do that job and be political. I just don't, I don't think it's possible. You have to just look past it. But but so when they say like, oh, yeah, I was working here and I saw a ghost and I just went, what, what? Right. Like, you know, is, is that is, <laughs> it's so uh, it turns out if you go through the presidential libraries and I went through all of them, just about every single president has either acknowledged, written about or, or said something about the ghosts of the White House. Uh, all of them. George H.W. Bush talked about them. Reagan had comments on them. I mean, Harry S. Truman wrote about them six different times in letters to his wife saying the damn place is haunted. Sure is shooting to quote the president. Wow. Right. He heard footsteps walking around, all this stuff. 
And when you walk into that building, I mean, there's a power to it. When you realize, wow, I'm standing where every single U.S. president has stood. Washington died before it was complete, but still, like he laid the cornerstone. He was there. He was right there on those grounds. And you just think of Lincoln and everybody else and you go, whoa, this is a this is a powerful place. And so many decisions have been made. And and I think, too, that when you're in there, like some of those names are sort of sacred names like Lincoln, you know, and Kennedy and stuff like that. And I think most presidents have felt the the influence of that, felt the power of it. And so, again, haunted probably because it should be, because you need to remember that however bad you have it as president, Lincoln had it worse, <laughs> a lot yeah. worse. Oh, yeah. You ain't seen nothing, boy. Oh, sure. oh, you know, yeah. Yeah. nothing like you got it easy. You know, like he had a nation at war with itself. His boy dies in the White House. Yep. I mean, he he's assassinated like you. You've had nothing like nobody, you know, in modern era. Has well, he's one of the ghosts, like right? Is he one of the ghosts there? He's one of the most prominent ghosts. And I, I would submit to you that the presidents who have any sort of understanding and appreciation for history have summoned him again and again, every single you know presidential cycle. And I say that because I remember watching an interview with George H.W. Bush, the first Bush president, when he said uh, he was pretty new in office and he had to send some troops into harm's way for some minor operation. But still, there was a distinct possibility some Americans were going to get killed. And he was really struggling with it. He was up all night thinking about it. He's like, and then I thought, about what Lincoln went through. And I said, all right, if he got through that, I can get through this. And I get it. He's a benchmark. It's it's like, you, I imagine, I, I wouldn't know, obviously, but I imagine presidents could almost feel him standing over their shoulder saying, it's not that bad, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. look at me. <laughs> look at what I went through. You can do this. And so I do believe that great leaders stand on the shoulders of giants. They acknowledge those that came before them, that, um, you know, tough decisions have been made before and that it's going to be their turn to make tough decisions and history will judge them. And so that that's the power of it. And that's the power of uh, of the spirit of the building. And it's there. Are they transient spirits or, or are they kind of old timers that are there all the time? I don't know. <laughs> they only <laughs> let me in once. <laughs> okay, <laughs> But uh, I will say this. Uh, I know that uh, in general, I've found since I've been paying close attention to the ghost of the White House, the current administration and by current, I mean, whoever is in there at the time you're asking yep. generally does not talk about the ghosts. Right. Once they get out of office, you tend to start to hear the ghost stories. So you're always going to be about four years behind, uh, you know, on any ghost experiences, right? Because once, once, once a president is out of office and the first family's out of office and they, they don't have political aspirations anymore, then they're a little more free to talk about whatever. And uh, that's when those stories tend to come out, but not, not during. Yeah, that's that's just very impressive because you don't see ghost adventures going to the White House. <laughs> You're anything. We've like that. tried. Oh my yeah. God, we've asked. <laughs> I could imagine. Yeah, no, and I mean, uh, there was no surprise that they said no. I mean, you have to remember, number one, it's public housing. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, there's that, right? It's someone's private residence in a place where they don't get much privacy and they don't get, I mean, you're living in a fishbowl there, basically. So, it's someone's private residence. The first floor is a museum where the public comes and goes pretty regularly. And you've got, you know, big, important world leaders coming and going out of that building all the time. So, for you to be like, hey, I need you to shut up, bro, we're going to look for ghosts. Yeah. <laughs> We're doing a briefing right tough now. To yeah, pull yeah. Off. You've been to so many places. Is there any place you haven't been to and that you would is on your list to go explore? Yeah. I mean, there's millions of places. The, the good news is, I, I have to say, if there's a place I've wanted to see or, or wanted to explore, I found a way to get there in general. I mean, I've been to Australia, I've been to Europe, I've been to you know Canada and all over the U.S. And I've been to Machu Picchu and, and I will find a way to get there if it interests me enough, if it calls to me. And that's that's kind of how I work, right? I, I, I wait for the call, this, this thing inside of me that goes, oh man, that's a cool story. Oh, dude, I want to I be there. Like, I really want to be there. And if that thing keeps gnawing at me, then I just got to find a way to go, whether it's go there for a project or just pay my own way. I mean, whatever it takes. So just, I, I really want to get to the suicide forest in Japan. Uh, yeah. yep. That's on yep. my list. And 
And then while I'm there, I want to climb Mount Fuji because that's right behind it. So uh, I'm trying to figure out, like, how do I make a week of that, right? Like, go to Japan, climb Mount Fuji, explore the suicide forest, which is, for those who don't know, it's the number one place in the world to take your own life. It's uh, And it started, I, I actually wrote a chapter about this in my book, The World's Most Haunted Places. It started because someone wrote this novel, not even a really great novel, Japanese novel, that was more or less a ripoff of Romeo and Juliet, which, you know, again, that that story has been ripped off a yep. million times. So these star-crossed lovers uh, ultimately decide they're going to go camp in this this forest and take their own lives. And someone read it and they were suicidal and they went and they did it. And then someone else did it and someone else did it. And to the point where it, I mean, there's signs everywhere like, hey, if you need help, if you need someone to talk to, call this number. There are people that are watching for uh, folks that look despondent when they go into the woods and body after body is pulled out of the air all year long. And it's the number one place in the world for suicide. The number two place, by the way, is San Francisco's Golden Gate Bridge. Yeah, that, it's funny. I would have thought of that, but it's very it, it makes sense. That's crazy. Yeah. And and that's the power of legend. So if if you're in the Bay Area and you're suicidal, you know, like, oh, that's where everybody goes. And that's there's a I mean, you can call it whatever you want. You can call it woo woo. You can call it coincidence. You can call it some cosmic force. But the reality is enough people have got that idea in their head that they've gone there to do that at that place, whether the Golden Gate Bridge or the suicide forest. That That's a cloud. That's like a, a stain that gets left on those locations. And you, it's palpable. I mean, you feel that as long as you're human. I'm sure like when you went to the Lizzie Borden house, Robert, yep. right? Like you, you, you feel something, sure. right? When you know, wow, a, a guy was killed right here, like right, right here. Yeah. And right at that capture yeah. right there as soon as you walk in. Absolutely. You, you feel that. And that's because you're a human being. I went to the Conjuring house. You've been yeah. there, right? Have you, oh, yeah. yeah. A bunch. So that was kind of a weird, I mean, I went during the day. I'm not crazy, but I, you know, I didn't go at night, but I went during the day. But oh, yeah. I mean- and I actually felt outside. I thought it was, you know, I look, there's a lot of unrest and there's uh, some history with soldiers and Indians and and stuff that happened on that land and suicide and all that stuff. But it really is a beautiful outside in the day. It really has a sense of beauty to it, too, even though there was a lot of tragedy and some bad stuff that kind of happened on that place. I don't know how much bad stuff happened there. I really don't. The Bathsheba story doesn't hold any water that I don't think yeah. Bathsheba had anything to do with that property at all. There was a guy that died of exposure in the, the the shed right right on the property that happened. I'm sure there was a couple other deaths in the in the building, whether natural causes or disease or whatever. I mean, the the place has been there for centuries, you know, going on yeah. three centuries. I mean, it's going to see some stuff. But the but the real and and this is the crazy thing about that story. So I was there. I got Ghost Adventures in there for our Halloween episode this past year. Yeah, I was watching I, that today, actually. <laughs> yeah. So so I knew I knew Corey uh, and Corey. I spoke to Corey the second day he was in the house, and he said, "Dude, I bought the Conjuring house." I'm like, "You're kidding?" He goes, "No, last night was my first night." And he's like, "Do you want to come over?" And I went, "Yeah." He said, "Do you want to come over tonight?" I went, "Yeah." So <laughs> I. I was there on the second night. And the crazy thing is I knew Norma that owned the house before because right after the movie had come out, she came to one of my library programs and she introduced herself before we started. And she, I said, wow, would you be willing to talk to the audience about the conjuring house? And she's like, well, I don't want to make a fuss, but if it comes up, I would be willing. And so I went to a, the front row and there was a kid I knew who was in the front row to see my program. And I leaned over before we started. And I said, look, when I ask for questions, you put your hand up and you say, Hey, what do you think of the Conjuring movie? Isn't that house nearby? <laughs> <laughs> and right on cue, I'm like, any questions? Hit me. <laughs> and I said, well, wouldn't it be cool? <laughs> he puts his hand up. And, and I was like, hey, uh, wouldn't it be cool to talk to someone who actually lives in the house? And they're like, yeah. I was like, Norma, would you come to the front, please? And like, it was like, it was like Elvis walked in or something, right? Everyone's like, oh my God, oh, you're kidding me, right? And so I sort of yeah. interviewed her in front of the audience. Now, she, you got to remember, she was on the show Ghost Hunters years ago. And they said nothing about Ed and Lorraine Warren. Um, it, it was just, it's an old house that seems to be haunted. And so Ghost Hunters went in there years ago and they didn't reference anything. So I knew Ed and Lorraine Warren since I was like 12. I knew Norma, who owned the house before. I know the Ghost Hunters guys. I know Corey, who owns the house now. I've been to the house, and I know the Ghost Adventures guys. I know Keith and Carl Johnson, who were the first investigators to actually go in there to bring in the Warrens before the Warrens got there. It's yeah. I, I feel like I know that case so inside and out 
It's it's crazy. And the thing is, until the movie came out, that was just another old house. It was the movie that changed everything. And the movie is such a huge. And I know the parent family. I've interviewed all of them. Like, you know, well, not all of them, but I mean, Roger and Andrea. And I've met most of the sisters. Right. Like, so yeah. it's so crazy to know everybody involved. Now, the movie is such a gross exaggeration of, of what happened. I mean, the, the house didn't try to eat anybody. Ed and Lorraine Warren got kicked out of the house. Ed was punched in the nose during a seance and told, get out of here. Don't come back. That was it. That was the end of it. And and so you've got this like th- this Hollywood movie that people think is real. And that's why they're stopping by the house now and looking at it. And and it's it's created this legend, uh, not out of nothing, but out of very little. And and now that's the thing that's that's plaguing that house. And it's fascinating to watch like the 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 power. Now, I, I went to school in Long Island right near Amityville. And, I was just thinking. Yeah. That. So my <laughs> yeah. yeah, my freshman year, I, I met a buddy and I'm like, oh, where do you live? He's like, oh, I live in Amityville. I'm like, cool. He's like, do you want to see the house? I'm like, yes, I want to see the house. So we drive down Ocean Avenue and, you know, those windows, those famous windows are gone. Uh, the sure. streets, yeah, the streets been renumbered, but if you know what the house looks like at all, you can find it easy enough and that houses are very close together. I mean, it's there, you know, I don't know, 30, 40 feet between the houses. I mean, it's, and that's it. And so you, now you're standing there and whether you believe in the movie or not, I know for a fact, six people were murdered in that house by their brother slash son. And, and that guy's still alive and in jail. Like that's a fact. And that that has a power, right? Like there's no, there's no debating on that stuff. I mean, that's the crime yeah. scene photos are out there and everything. So to me, the Amityville house was even more powerful, but still, I mean, there's a legend beyond that as well with the, because of the movie and the books and everything else. Crazy world. No, it's exciting though. What's next for you? And, and is there anything that you would like to share with our audience that you'd like to plug or promote? Uh, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, I also do my weekly podcast, New England Legends, which, um, We've been doing that for 140 weeks. Very sadly, in the last two weeks, we've had to resort to uh, playing best ofs from the vault to keep new episodes out because we're not able to get out there and do what we do. Yeah. But um, yep. but but we'll be right back to it, I promise. And that's been amazing. So uh, I've basically researched and written 138 different stories of strangeness from New England that uh, I'm, I'm currently turning into a book that I'm going to be shopping around very soon. So like I'm working on that. The podcast is still going. I'm still, I'm, the speakeasies is a brand new thing. And these online lectures are the next new thing. And one of the, one of the problems I've had is that I've had fans from like all over the country say, God, I wish I could go, but I don't live in New England. Well, guess what? How cool is it that this pandemic sort of solve that. If I'm going to be doing them remotely, then more people can see it and, and talk about these stories. So I'm just doing all that I can to continue the work I'm doing and get it out there. And, and I'm grateful that, you know, thanks for having me on your podcast to talk about it. And thanks for putting me in your film. I, I really believe that these stories are important and that they do connect us, um, not just to the history, but to each other, because man, what's better than sitting around and talking about like weird stuff that shakes the foundation of what you thought you believed. What's great about you is you're just a tremendous storyteller. I've, I've seen you, I've seen your presentations and they're just phenomenal. I mean, you do a great job and you have a lot Thank of you. twists and, and, and some kind of tells and stuff in your, in your presentations and you always tie everything together and it's just so clever. I encourage people to check you, you know, to, to check out your online talks. And I'd love for you to, I, I look forward to the next time your evening of ghost stories with your cohorts. I think that's a, that's a great thing too. So I, I really never get yeah. tired of, of you and your, and the stories that you have to share, Jeff. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a compulsion at this point. I love the subject so much. I love where I live and I really like talking to people and that's, that's how you get these stories, right? You, you don't, they don't just fall out of the sky. You got to talk to folks and, it just kind of brings together everything that I love to do. And, um, you know, we'll find a way. We'll f- all find a way to keep doing it. Uh, even if we have to do it from six feet apart, <laughs> you know, whatever it takes, we will uh, we will get the stories. Yeah. You know, I look forward to the uh, next evolution of storytelling. And, and thanks for being on the show. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. And congrats on the movie. Oh, thank you. Appreciate it. So that, folks, is Jeff Belanger, the inimitable, say that three times fast, historian and storyteller. Always a great interview. You can follow Jeff on jeffbelanger.com. You can follow him on Facebook. Check out his speakeasies. They're a lot of fun. He's just a 
a great guy and a lot of fun to be around and has tremendous knowledge. One minor side note, I would say The Conjuring House, one of our next guests is Brandy Wells, a psychic medium. She's actually going there, so she's going to have some pretty good stuff to tell us about that. And there's been quite a few good EVPs that John Huntington's got. So recently, it's interesting. Some people are picking up some stuff. So we'll see. We'll follow up on that. But it's a, it's a great place. You've been listening to the Afraid of Nothing podcast. Please subscribe and like us on Facebook. Until next time, stay scared. Hey, you're still here? Great. Then why not listen to another episode? Visit afraidofnothingpodcast.com to peruse all the shows. That's afraidofnothingpodcast.com. And while you're there, click the coffee cup icon to buy me a coffee and leave a review. I'll give you a shout-out in an upcoming episode. And the world will know how swell you are.